When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to Quarantine Conversations. This is your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's guest is Andrew Doyle, who is an author, playwright, and comedian responsible for many a chuckle, both local and abroad. In this conversation, we explore different ways in which the culture war might adapt or trip over itself during the present crisis. We also circumambulate voice ferociously through many a different free-ranging conversation topic, as is the want of brains like ours. So without further ado, here is Andrew Doyle. How was, um, how was the landscape changed for you since we last spoke? Uh, well, I mean, this... it's recognizable, isn't it? It's, it's, uh, how are you getting on? Whereabouts are you? Okay. Which bit of the country are you in? I'm, I'm in Washington State, which I think was pretty much one of the first places where it touched down. Right, okay. And uh, we've been on lockdown. My day job is working for a local school, and we were, that was shut down, uh, I guess, two weeks ago now. This is the second yeah. week of just being at home now. Um, right. But the governor, the governor just uh, shut everything down. Um, right. Everything non-essential. Um, yeah, yeah. So I guess, I think it was about a week ago. Yeah, it's all well. Last time we spoke, this wasn't even on the cards, was it? I mean, it, <laughs> it's it's maybe surprising. some people knew about it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what it's like where you are. We have a we're allowed to exercise once a day. That's so we're allowed to leave the house once a day for exercise. I'm finding that quite stressful actually because I don't normally bother. So doing the one a day thing, it's it's been tough. Um, so it's I'm mandated. Doing... It, you're you're not allowed just to go out once. You're, you're everybody's forced to go out once. Well, I'm reading it that way. Uh, yeah, because I, you know, it's a good excuse to have to go and walk around the place. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I spoke to my cousin in Florence, and he was telling me. I mean, I'd spoken to him a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about how he was having to take papers with him if he wanted to even like walk the dog or go to a shop, and he had mm. to have a signed document, you know, which is very much like a wartime condition. Yeah. And it felt very strange. It felt very odd. And there's a there was a he, he directed me to a live webcam. There's a place... Do you know Florence at all? No. Right. So you should go. Not that you can now, but you should. Uh, the centre... So this is high tourist season in Florence. And Florence, as you know, is one of the busiest cities in, in Italy. And there's a place at the centre of the city called the Piazza Signoria, which is the most beautiful... It's got, like, a loggia and um, statue... Uh, there's a copy of Michelangelo's David there. There's the um, Palazzo Vecchio and all sorts of incredible... Uh, it's normally rammed. It's normally just packed and and you can go on this live webcam and it's like the walking dead it's like just, the pigeons. just, just not, not even pigeons you know not, not just nothing and it's it's yeah that sort of stuff it feels almost cinematic you know yeah i'm gin and tonic i hope you don't mind because here it's evening where you are is probably I, i'm i'm kind of at my ginger ale time of the day but I, I left it in the kitchen yeah i've left my ginger ale part of the day that was <laughs> um but yeah do you so think fair, that Go on, sorry. 
No, I'm just wondering, like, uh, do you think that Britain is uh, has some sort of, you know, institutional memory about going into lockdown that that's fresher for you guys? You guys are going to be able to adapt to that mindset? I don't know. Everyone keeps um, invoking the blitz spirit, don't they? But it's not really the same thing at all. Well, you know, you know. It, it, it's not the same. It, it's it's it's. Uh, hmm. But people are generally pretty good, I think, on the whole. And people do, people have been really looking out for each other and and. You know, you had the early scares with all the stockpiling and all of that kind of stuff. And people were thinking, well, uh, is everyone just going to become feral, you know, when this all kicks off? And actually, people just aren't like that on the whole. You get a few people who behave in a selfish way, but they did the same in the war. There are all sorts of black marketeers and people in the war who who were using it in an opportunistic way. Um, but most people are just decent people and everyone's, uh, you know, so I think we'll be. Um, what do you think is going to happen? What's your what's your prediction? Well, I know no one picked, but what's your you seem like a a pretty sharp guy, so I think you you, you seem shrewd. <laughs> I you know I was talking to Katie Herzog just earlier today, and she's got pretty uh, pretty cynical uh, view of it. She's a author, uh, a writer, a journalist up in uh, Seattle, um, yeah, just north of me, and she she's worried about food shortages, and she's worried about the stress uh, on the hospitals, and that we might be seeing a lot of secondary effects that could possibly just completely ruin you know things for right. quite a while so there's that view but i don't know if i necessarily subscribe to that because i i don't know yet so i can i'm not going to predict because i'm always rubbish at predictions but i could tell you what I'm, I'm hoping for right because the the projections at the moment from experts are that most of us have already had it in the country okay yeah. so uh, the, the statisticians whoever they are who are projecting they think most of us have already had it and if that's the case there's a possibility potential that we've got an immunity to it at least for a certain degree of time uh, that's my hope that we've actually most of us have had it we've been asymptomatic we haven't noticed it and uh so and these new tests that they're you know they're, they're generating these new tests of antibodies which should be up and up and running in a couple of weeks time and if that is the case then things can probably get back to normal quicker than anyone thought that's my hope mm-hmm. you know i think mm-hmm. it'd be good um but otherwise we're stuck aren't we it's not so bad for me because i'm just used to being inside and being well, by yeah. myself. Yeah, you're very online. Yeah, and, yeah. No, I'm not. Um, I'm a writer, so I don't. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm perfectly happy not going out that much. Um, but I do feel for those people who are who are more social animals, you know, and who who require the society Correct. of other people. You know, I'm I'm too much of a misanthropist to need the, the company of, of others, you know? That's fair. That's fair. I, I, I'm kind of in your, in your boat. I'm, 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 I'm a generous, uh, misanthrope, but still a misanthrope. And, okay. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. No, no. I like people. I just don't like being around them. <laughs> I, like, I like that they exist, but I just don't, I don't need them near me yeah. to thrive. Yeah. <laughs> what am I, well, he had one sip of gin, by the way, this sounds like I'm a bit drunk. I'm not. No, I like it. I like you. I like it, but what do you think has changed about the uh, the discourse, like the the internet discourse? Oh, that's interesting. Have you, have you noticed any tide changes? I have. I've noticed um, that the um, the typically vicious people are being even more vicious, and um, I wonder if it's to do with the uh, you know. I mean, lots of people are sort of suggesting, well, will will woke culture survive all of this stuff? Because of course, it's it's just so grounded on stuff that doesn't really matter, and and. Mm. Uh, and is so kind of well, it, but it's not trivial. This is the problem with it: is that it, it should be trivial, but it's not because it, it, it it's infected so many sort of major mainstream institutions of politics, law, media, the arts are so overrun by this stuff that is built on sand. Mm. And um, 
and maybe and so lots of people are sort of speculating now well can it because who cares who, who cares about um representation in soap operas and hollywood uh, when you've got an actual crisis to deal with no one cares about this stuff and so i i tweeted about this today because i have a sincere hope mm. that this will kill off uh that sort of illiberal woke authoritarian mindset uh, because those people look ridiculous now but to me they've always looked ridiculous but maybe yeah. now yeah. that will that will happen and maybe that's why i'm seeing gr- a greater degree of viciousness from that contingent you know i mean we saw today boris johnson and matt hancock the health secretary have both been tested positive for coronavirus and the level of venom and people just gleefully gloating about this and to- and expressing their desire that he h- die in pain and all this sort of stuff and this is it's not just one or two it's a lot of people and they're coming from these are the same people who uh, have the pronouns in their bios and and signal how how wonderful and what good compassionate people they are um and they're the ones who are really indulging in this kind of really unpleasant vitriol this kind of you know really terrible behavior and that but it's worse i think it's worse than it normally would be and i think it might be that they're sensing that their whole movement might be on the verge of expiration because you know when you actually have things to worry about i mean it's like it's like a lot of this stuff came about because we're just not used to hardship so so when things are going well you find the trivial and escalated into the tragic and that i think has been happening now for a number of years and now we're being confronted with something that's actually life-threatening uh though it puts things into perspective maybe in a really healthy way of course we're not dealing with people who are capable of of self-reflection so I think they'll double down, hunker down, get worse, get more vicious, like a rat trapped in a corner, you know. They'll bite back and they won't go without a fight. But my hope is that I won't ever have to write about this stuff or talk about this stuff ever again. I, that's my, that's what I really would love to happen, ultimately. You'd you know? be free. I'd be free of this. You know, I can go back to talking about other things, things that are more important and things that, that matter to me more, you know. Um, Such I, as what? Politics, literature, the economy, uh, poverty, um, class consciousness, hmm. you know, stuff that actually, it, you know, I, I feel like I've been talking about this, um, the woke movement so much because I feel obliged to because I've seen how damaging it is. And I've seen how destructive it's been for society and for culture and for politics. Um, and I'd love for nothing, nothing more than it to just go. Um so I'm I'm in two minds about it. Will it or will it not? I don't. Probably not, just because I know what they're like. Um, but maybe maybe people just will stop taking them seriously now. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah, so that's I was not wondering. That's more a kind of wandering. Yeah, know? I was wondering if if they lose credibility, that will be what kind of they're going to have to adapt and go on to other topics. Potentially, but then I've seen also lots and lots of threads of all sorts of articles and things coming out which are weaponizing coronavirus in order to advance a woke mindset you know so it's already happening and and of course it would it would do you know um and some of them are utterly ridiculous you know some of them have been really stupid talking about the lack of diversity in trump's coronavirus team task force or whatever and talking about um uh how uh, whiteness is related to the i mean look honestly it's the usual stuff right it's yeah. you can yeah. google and find it but um what what i'm thinking is i mean they've always been a minority people like this but but now i think people are going to take them even less seriously than they ever did that's that's probably what i'm thinking 
How do you go back to talking about class consciousness after dealing with something as radioactive and wild as the woke doctrine? Well, I, I didn't stop. I mean, I've written about the, the you know, the, the most important, when we're talking about diversity, the most important element of diversity is class, is, 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 is representation of, of people from different, because class has tangible uh, benefits or uh, negatives, doesn't it? You know, I mean, you, you, you can't just walk, you don't have that kind of nepotism unless you come from wealth mm-hmm. um and so much of this is driven by class so that's where I, i've never stopped talking about it and writing about it but i think um well, you know stuff to do with uh, any form of extreme identity politics is always a, a distraction uh you know from 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 things that actually matter so yeah i i don't know maybe we'll go back to that i'd love to write more about literature i'd love to write more about arts uh Again, I was working on a biography of a of a novelist, um, which I had to put on hold because of all of this stuff. So, so I, Wait, I've done all the which work. novelist? It's a novelist called Forrest Reed, who's a Northern Irish uh, novelist who died in 1947, and he has a brilliant autobiography called Apostate, which I think is the best autobiography I've ever read. Um, it was written in 1926, but he it's 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 set when he was a child. When you're talking. Uh, he was born in 1875, so it's the last quarter of the 19th century in Belfast. And the book is called Apostate, and it's about, it's the best account of um, childhood written so beautifully. Um, and he's such a unique individual. He's a, bear in mind, this is a, you know, coming from a Church of Ireland uh, background in Belfast in 1880, 1890. He had an instinctive uh, paganism. He rejected Jesus. He, re- he used to, there's a bit where he's talking about being in the church and screaming and throwing the hymn book down. All this when he's like five years old, all this very instinctive. Um, he found just Christ and the the cult of uh, Christianity as kind of this kind of rebarbative force, and um, and he instead worshipped the the earth and the the, the trees and the gods of uh, Pan and you know th- th- this kind of very unique, strange character, not at all like me, but he allows you to understand his perspective is very, very interesting. Um, and his books are brilliant, but he's been all, for, all but forgotten, pretty much totally forgotten. So I've, I've done all the research. I've read everything he's ever written, all his letters. I've uncovered documents that people hadn't seen before. I've, I've, uh, I've got it all, all the documents I need to write the book. And I've written about a third of the book, but I had to stop because I ended up getting, because you have to live, don't you? You can't just work. Because you know, when I finish this book, no one's going to buy it. Like it's, it's literally just for me. Yeah. Um, yeah, and like the three or four people who still read Forest Reed novels, um, but no one's going to care. So, I, but I really want that. I'm, I'm more passionate about that. But you get distracted by stuff that obviously you, you feel you have to deal with now, or like with the Titania McGrath book. You know, that that was a job. I, you know, and I, I, I cared about it as well. So that was a good. That was one of those uh, fortuitous moments where you know you're getting paid for something you actually think is is valuable. Um, How do you say your name again? Because I, I can't do it. I can't. Titania. Titania, Titania McGrath. Okay. Yeah. Is that is that is the accent thing or is it the? I don't know. I I got I got called out several times, but the British like to call me out on my um my flaws. Do they? That's so rude. (laughs) No. Well, we're we're a pedantic race, I guess. (laughs) Well, that's how you guys got ahead for that brief moment of time when you're on top of the world, right? Very briefly. Pedanted all the way around the world. We did. We we pedanted. Oh, we pedanted. <laughs> yeah. Well, the sun never set on the empire, did it? Was no. it the biggest empire the world's ever seen? 
So you're you're rearing to go back to boring then. You're like, I can't wait to go back to boring in a way. I can't wait. <laughs> yeah, no, I know what you mean. It's it's a yeah, because it's fu- it's funny and everything. Because you know, people with a lack of self awareness are funny, and people who are who are you know screaming about pronouns and things. I mean, that, there, there's something funny about that, but I also find it a little bit scary. And uh, I'd I'd like to. I'd like to go back to a society, not even going back, actually. It's not something we've ever fully attempted, which is I would like us to have a uh, a society in which we seriously embrace liberal values. That's what I want, right, as a kind of, that's a baseline. You know, we've sort of attempted it, but not successfully. Do, do you, don't you think that there's a class analysis, and maybe not class in terms of material class, but classiness uh, analysis that can be put on that? Like, aren't certain people just going to want to act that way, and certain people aren't going to want to act that way, and the illiberal are just going to usually control the conversation because they're the brats screaming in the corner? You'll always have the brats screaming in the corner because we're dealing with human nature, and there's, you know, there's yeah. the difference is when you allow the brats to run the classroom. That's when it that's when it gets fucked up. I mean, no one would care if these people were just screaming on Twitter and that was it. But they're not. They run government departments and quangos and and uh, you know uh, universities, you know, and the police and the judiciary. I mean, come on, this is the, the, that. Not that's why the culture matters so much. It's not that it's just. It, I could deal with idiots screaming on Twitter block them and move on right you can't block government quango <laughs> no no one they're coming knocking on your door for a limerick no yeah you can't block the police have you gotten any serious trouble with uh wrong think no yeah. i mean i i I've, I've been very fortunate and i'm fortunate insofar as i i i work for myself and i decide what i say and i say what i want and i don't i'm not censored and i'm not being uh i'm i've never been you know, I've lost jobs. I've lost work over what I've chosen to say. Um, I've lost work for having the wrong opinion. Um, but I, I, I accept that as a corollary of, of, of speaking my mind and, and I, I'll go and get other work. And also, I don't want to work for someone who is, uh, uh, has those kind of attitudes and is back, uh, you know, has that kind of backward attitude. So, you know, it's fine. You know, it's fine for me, but it's not. It's 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 people who it's friends of mine actually. It's it's friends and family and people who have to work in in jobs that aren't like my job. You know, they have to work in departments where there's someone breathing down their neck all the time, or checking what they're saying to each other, or checking what jokes they're making, and and uh, people generally feeling. I mean, whatever you think about this stuff, there is a general sense in which people feel they can't speak their minds anymore they can't say what they think without fear of repercussions and whether you think that that fear is warranted or not i don't think anyone can deny that the fear is there and it is ubiquitous so that's why i feel it has to be addressed how do you think that the corona uh crisis might allow people to call bullshit on that do you think that that's Uh, a possibility that was that's potentially insofar as uh, you know we've We've had a brush now with some kind of global crisis, you know, uh, n- not comparable to the Blitz, but uh, but we've had some, we've dipped our toes into something uh, and we've got a kind of premonition of what things could be like. I mean, what if we have another pandemic which is more severe, which is on the level of, say, SARS was, but but, but it goes international, then, then what do you do? And so now I think um, a bit of perspective might come, might come out of this, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know. <laughs> 
So class you, consciousness. I don't. I don't know anything. I really don't know. You do. You know. I mean, I've seen the way you tweet. You're very erudite. <laughs> yeah, because I, I have a sentence that somebody else made me think of, and then I just work with the rhythm until it's perfect, and it feels right. like okay. me thinking. You know? No, I mean that. You shouldn't knock it. It's a good skill. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. No. In the world of sentences, that's. I'm thinking that's that's going to be my first book. My book. Yeah. Book. It's just going to be called Sentences, a book by Benjamin Boyce. I buy that. It's very meta. I like it. It's just I think, that's what uh, I want to do. Well, I think, okay, so do I, class consciousness, do I think, um, I think it's a good opportunity for kind of self-reflection. Anything like this is a really good opportunity to sort of think, okay, so how do we establish a new, uh, what does the left do? What should the left do now? Now, I think the left needs to completely rethink what it's whole. I mean, the left in our country, in the UK, has become virtually unelectable because of woke politics now, right? Um, and the Democrats have nearly got there. They, they almost got there with Elizabeth Warren, say, or the, the squad, which has been really great for Trump. Um, you know, the Alexander Ocasio-Cortezes of the world, um, mm-hmm. all of those sorts of people, which which make the left a laughing stock. So what the left has to do is rid itself of identity politics. And the trouble is identity politics on the right is a, is a vote winner. So you can have um, uh, nationalist populists pushing identity politics, their form of identity politics, which is nationalism, and they get votes off it and they get in power. When the left does it, they lose every single time. Now, if you, don't, if you don't believe me, there's a great book by Mark Lilla called The Once and Future Liberal, which talks all about this, uh, about how it guarantees unelectability. If you are a left-wing party and you push identity politics, it will never work. And the, the, the data's in on that. So we know that doesn't work. So what do we do? We need to re- rethink what is the left all about. Well, the left's priority has to be the working class. It has to be social mobility. It has to be uh, uh, looking out for the, the weakest and most vulnerable in society. And the mistake that the woke identitarians made is that they thought that the prisms of class, race, uh, sorry, uh, race, gender and sexuality matter more than money. And they, they don't. They do matter. I'm not saying they're not important, but they're not as important as, as the tangible effects of not being able to afford to feed your family. Right. So so money is what matters ultimately most of all. So that, so we need a leftist movement that focuses on class and is aware of the issues of class and is aware of the benefits and privileges that come with class. We need a, a leftist movement that is unambiguously against racism in all of its forms for equality. Um, and and also, if you're against racism, it means reminding yourself what racism actually means and being aware of it and being and being aware that to call someone racist is one of the most serious accusations you can make. So you better be sure there has to be evidence. So I say stand up against racism where it exists, not where you perceive it might be. That's why we have to rid ourselves of this, these ideas of power structures and, uh, you know, and unconscious bias and all the stuff, which is basically people seeking, seeking out racism where it probably isn't. So that's something that the left needs to regain again. Um, what else can we do? Andrew, could you hold on for a moment? I, uh, your video froze. Ah, can I, right. Can I call you back real quick? Yeah, do it. Anyway, you were asking me what what do we do in the future? Well, okay, so you you were you were cleaning up you were cleaning up the left. You're 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 doing like the William Buckley like for the left. You're going to go in there. You're going to reform the whole party. And uh, I think we need a credible left wing option, and that only comes. I think identity politics is the major issue. I think we have to get, and the return to class consciousness. Those are the major things for me, and to stand up uh, against genuine inequality. That does include inequality of uh, race, gender, sexuality, the stuff that the woke people do claim to support, yeah, even though they make it worse. Um, but that stuff's important if it's done in the right way uh, and in an intelligent adult way, uh, not just screaming racist 
all the time because you just assume someone is. So, yeah, the left has to get that on board. Um, has class consciousness ever really worked as a political uh, movement or does it dissolve sure. into? The labor movement comes from that. Okay. The whole, I mean, the, the, well, I, I keep talking about labor and uh, it's a very UK centric thing to talk about. But, it, you know, the labor movement came out of the, the, uh, the need to represent the working man in parliament. That's where it came from. You know, that's why it's always been so closely associated with the trade unions. Um, and, you know, to not understand that that is that the party is called Labour. Like, it's not, like we know what this means to not understand that that has got to be. But this is why the, the, the Labour Party fucked up so badly in the last election, because they tried to overturn the Brexit vote, even though the majority of Labour constituencies voted to leave and the, major, and the majority of working class people voted to get out of the EU. For all sorts of reasons, but partly because there was a, a, a perception that there was wage depression due to uh, freedom of movement, right? And so, and, and these are not people with money. So money is a, a pri- it's it's a priority for people, you know. So um, hmm. that, so yeah, we need a, we need a proper look. Even if you do, even if you're not a socialist, it is in your benefit, it is in your interest to have a serious, genuine left wing socialist opposition, or at least a choice. I don't want Tony Blair version of Labour and Peter Mandelson's version of Labour, which is identical to the Tories, uh, except it was just more uh, socially liberal on certain issues. I don't Mm. want that. I want two distinct parties and there can be a choice again. And I think that's, uh, Mm. that's, that's probably what we need to do. And we need to stop. um, What else do we need to do? I don't know. I think that'll do for now, won't it? That's quite... quite (laughs) Your wish list is pretty short then. I think we can, uh, we can put pressure on the Chinese to, to, uh, to sort out their, uh, their animal husbandry. Uh, so we don't have another pandemic, maybe, you know, and and that apparently is quite a contentious thing to say. But I don't think there's a problem there, you know, with uh, with uh, pointing out that that um, hmm. certain the, cultural uh, practices lead to massive uh, depreciation of human life across the globe. So I, so I wasn't sure why this was. And I, 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 I looked it up and uh, I, I I've absolutely known I'm utterly ignorant about anything to do with biology or science. So I sort of wanted to know. Why do they keep coming? Why is it from bats all the time? And the, 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 uh, apparently it's because bats have an incredibly strong immune system. Do you know about this? They have an incredibly strong immune system. So they can carry multiple viruses all at once. Very strong, virulent, vi- well, vir- virulent viruses. Um, and it doesn't affect them. It doesn't harm them because, they, because cause they're mammals that have the power to fly. And apparently flight creates, it requires incredible energy. And therefore they build up incredible immune systems. Oh. But when, so they can carry these deadly viruses and it does nothing to them. They don't care. And then when it transfers to a human, our, our immune systems are not are not equipped to cope with it. So we need to maybe genetically modify humans so we can fly, maybe. Okay. Or, yeah. Or some, I don't know. I, like I say, I'm not a scientist. I don't yeah. know how that would work. But we, we need can to do think wing genics or something like that. Something like that. Something like that would be good. I quite enjoy that. Take to the air. Would you really though? Well, to be able to fly. Hell yeah. 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 Um, yeah, I think so. I've never understood that fantasy. Like, what, what do you gain from being able to lift off from the ground? I guess escape? Yeah, it's, cheap. it's cheaper if you want to go abroad. <laughs> I, never, I never went on holiday abroad as a kid because we couldn't afford it. Uh, oh, so I always okay. envied. I envied people who could go on holidays to foreign countries. And uh, if I could fly, that would solve that. <laughs> is it really come to this now that's what we're talking about now i don't know see i i just as a human being i don't think you could fly across the channel i mean i think that be like like just like swimming like it would take a certain sort of that's true phenotype to do that you know you yeah and i'm to, quite lazy yeah no but do you, i mean but in, in all seriousness i mean is it is it 
is it a problem to put to put pressure on the Chinese government to to uh, monitor this stuff and to? I mean, maybe I'm wrong. I don't well, know. no, I I think that the Chinese government's got a pretty strong propaganda arm that can leverage the identity of politics that uh, the West has uh, been playing with uh, in their favor, right? So they could just. I, I think they were the first. They did a marketing blitz, like yeah. calling it Chinese virus is racist. Like the the Chinese propagandists were the first ones saying that, and then yeah, of well, course the American the bubonic, media. Bubonic play came from China. How about that? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, they got, they've got history and look, that's silly. I, 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 here's the thing, right? What I loved about the whole Chinese virus thing is then all of a sudden I saw all these debates about um, Spanish flu, you know, like, so, so people were saying, well, we don't call it Spanish flu anymore. Uh, lots of people were saying that and I thought, are you kidding? Everyone calls it the Spanish flu. Literally everyone calls it the Spanish flu. There is, they, they were literally trying to revise history they were gaslighting everyone right in front of your eyes they were saying nobody ever calls it the spanish flu anymore because it's not even i know that that flu did not originate in spain but we still all call it the spanish flu so let's not pretend that we, we've stopped doing that because we do it, i don't think it, it really shows like that little news cycle really shows the, the brilliance of trump and the idiocy of uh of of our marketeers like it, it really shows that the uh large portion of media and journalism is just obsessed with labels and just obsessed with uh, framing exactly. no one was saying oh it's come from china therefore chinese people are awful or no one was saying that no one was no it wasn't a racist thing um but then of course the concern becomes well what about if an actual racist uses that kind of language in order to that's the argument isn't it really yeah justify it's kind of a future crime kind of thing but it doesn't stop it doesn't change the fact that the, the 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 virus originated in china and there's there are reasons for that hmm you know, and and it's not because of Chinese people; it's because of the the uh, the animal husbandry and the, um, the the wet markets. Yeah, somebody even made a really good point that it was the conditions under Mao that forced the Chinese people to start eating all these different animals because they didn't have any other source of food. Oh, you broke up there, Benjamin. I did break. Can up. you hear me still? Has your business been changed? I guess you guys aren't doing that tour. You and Mister Thirst Trap, Douglas Murray. Um, are we doing the tour? Um, I haven't heard yet. Um, oh. I no, but I assume what's going to happen is that we are going to postpone the dates. Okay. I think. Was that going to happen like next month or? Well, because the tour, well, so I had the Titania McGrath tour, which was for April. So, so that's not going to happen. So what, what I'm, I'm sure those dates will be, I think at the moment they're looking into moving the dates so we can keep the tour and just do it later in the year. Um, and, and, you know, if it turns out that most of us have already had the coronavirus and we can all go back to work in three weeks, then that will be that will work out fine. Um, in terms of the tour with Douglas, that will probably go ahead. Um, uh, we're still planning to doing it, but I think it'll be later in the year. That's all. So I think we'll just okay. we'll keep, the, yeah. you know, I think we'll just I don't know because I haven't been told anything, hmm. uh, but I assume it's it's it will just um, reschedule the dates. And if people want a refund, I guess they can get a refund, you know. I think that's okay. uh, that's that's probably what will happen. I mean, this is happening to everyone. Like every everyone who's doing a show or touring a show, all of I've got a lot of comedian friends, and and of course they're all rescheduling their tours for later in the year. And most of, most of them are doing the sensible thing, which is saying, you know, you can keep your tickets or get a refund. You know, so we'll all lose out. No, everyone's in the same boat here, and that's that's fine. Yeah, but you you were already set up to just be a writer then. So have you seen a big change in 
your day-to-day life? Um, no, not really. I mean, I wrote an article yesterday. Uh, I, I, I've, I've got a lot still to do, so yeah. I'm okay, um, okay at the moment, but we'll see. Um, but of course, uh, I'm always living on, like, in terms of income, I'm always, it's always quite precarious. You know, I just, I just get <laughs> take work where I can get it. I'm not, you know, I don't, I don't, uh, it's not like having a stable job. I almost sort of miss having a stable job, you know? Did you ever have like a, like a proper nine to five job? Yeah, I couldn't do it. I always cobbled together. Because I used to work in a call center and I also was a teacher and I was a waiter for a while. And those things, it was like, you got to go in at a certain time, you got to finish it at a certain time. And that, I, part of me misses that. Um, I could never go back to teaching. That's the problem. Um, because Why if not? I did, like, they, well, they'd Google me, wouldn't they? And there's all these people calling me a Nazi. <laughs> and they'd think, they'd think, oh, it's probably not worth the risk, that. Was the call center, like, a cool thing? Like, you were saving people's lives or you were helping them no, with their insurance? No, it was a, for a store card. Oh. It was for a, you know, those, um, I don't know if you have them in America. So, like, uh, uh, it's like a credit card, which is specific to one particular store. Yeah. I, I presume you have those. Um, and uh, so I would basically be on the phone for people. Because the, the trouble with store cards is they have extortionate interest rates far way and above your typical kind of visa or mastercard situation you know we're talking like 30 percent apr or something really ridiculous and people would sign up for these store cards to get a discount on the initial purchase and then about three months later they'd realized they've 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 lost way more than the discount on the interest alone and they'd, they'd basically phone me up to shout at me and that was the job like to, to, to be shouted at by uh, angry people who hadn't read the small print but why should they read the small print i mean who does you know so uh and i had Did to you- obviously Totally what did you discover about yourself? I discovered that I sound very camp on the phone when I have to do something official, uh, you know, because uh, I, I remember I, I used to have, because you have a, I'd say, I'd answer the phone, I'd be like, um, uh, good evening, this is a Creation Financial Services, Andrew speaking, how can I help you? And you'd say it in that way and you'd start getting this sing-song huh. talk, way of talking, you know, and um yeah. I don't know why. It's like you, you inhabit a persona. You become someone you're not. You know? Because normally I'm quite butch, right? Okay. <laughs> I, well, I expected a bit more endorsement of my view there. Oh, no. Okay. I'm sorry. I, like, I, I've only thought of butch. I, didn't, I, I haven't transposed butch. Yeah, I'm going to drink my gin and tonic. and. Okay. Mm. There we go. So, yes. Because also the job is very boring. You know? And you're locked in. Like, you're monitored all the time. Because you've got the headset on and... And you have you if you if you're going to help a colleague, you have to type a code in. If you go into the toilet, you have to type a code in, and all sorts of like they monitor you all the time, and and uh, it's very heartless and empty and you know soul destroying. How long did you last? Two years. Oh wow! Yeah, that's a significant that's time. A, I guess. Yeah, um, I liked being a waiter. That was fun. Except I served a caterpillar, a living caterpillar to someone. It was, it was silver service, you know, where you, you have the, the broccoli and the cauliflower florets on your arm. And then you serve it from the arm with, the, with like a pincer movement with the spoon and the fork. I was quite good at that. And the problem is they'd steamed this broccoli. And so the caterpillars, there were multiple caterpillars in the broccoli. And they hadn't died because they, they hadn't been boiled. They'd been steamed. So, they, so I, I, I served this green caterpillar about that long onto a woman's plate and I saw it and I saw that it was alive and it was in the throes of death, you know, and because I was so young 
and non-confrontation. I just retreated to the back and hoped, I don't know what I hoped, I hoped she would eat it maybe and just and just get on with her life but she screamed it was horrible and they brought in the head chef and it was awful you know oh man was this the beginning yeah. of your class consciousness when you saw her reaction to you <laughs> uh well she was posh and i was just the boy serving the serving the caterpillars yeah so uh upstairs no, downstairs it, moment right no <laughs> no it wasn't that i don't think it was that <laughs> no although i did when I was a teenager, I did a, I got a job serving drinks at some posh, it was a Tory MP's house, and it was an event, and I was serving the drinks at the Tory MP's house, and I was like the, so yeah, you, I mean, those people were rich in a, in a way I hadn't encountered before, so yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe that was it, I don't know. No, because I don't have a problem with rich people, I don't, it's just that I never, I never knew any growing up, mm. um, and I, I know, I know some now. And uh, perfectly delightful people on the whole, you know. Yeah, the one thing that uh, disturbs me or makes me wary about like a class consciousness movement is how do you create a story where you don't pit the working class against the elites? Yeah, Can you yeah, do you that should. without that contention? Or well, that would be to... another. Yeah, that would be another thing I would love to do is 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 not to demonize anybody. So, you know, uh, there's nothing wrong with being born in wealth, and if you are wealthy. You know, you're still a human being at heart. You know, it's the same thing. But um, yeah, but just just a, an acknowledgement that that if you're poor, you have fewer opportunities. I think is a healthy thing, and 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 trying to seek to redress that in some way. Mm -hmm. um, the problem with the identitarian thing is what it says is like if you say, for instance, if you're a gay, if you're gay, you will always be oppressed, uh, irrespective if you're a multimillionaire or some gay boy from a council estate, right? And it's not the same. You know, mm -hmm. it's not the same. So. Mm -hmm. Money is the motor, I think, of most of most things. Oppression is, as a word, is used too much anyway. I, I, I think I feel very strongly about that. That you're you're not being oppressed unless you're you are living under an authoritarian state that is not allowing you to travel freely and say what you want and all the rest of it. No, no one in the US and the and the UK are oppressed. We're just not. You know, there are some people who have terrible lives and experience terrible prejudice. It's not the same thing as oppression. And I think we need to stop having this kind of concept creep and this elevation of, of definitions, you know, um, because it makes it difficult to talk about serious issues as and when they arise. How do you, how, do, how has that affected your storytelling? Like when you build a plot and you make uh, dynamics between people that are interesting, like have you seen yourself go from a victim uh, hero kind of thing or were you never? Well, I mean, in drama, you always want that sort of status uh, conflict going on and you, you, you know, but status can come about irrespective of money. You know, you can have, um, and, and the way status shifts in dramatic scenes and conceits can be really interesting. And it can be, do, it's not necessarily to do with money. It can be do with, with, with knowledge, you know, with, uh, with, um, there are all sorts of, uh, power dynamics at play, which are really interesting. Um, I don't write about, have I ever written about class or I wrote a play about two working class brothers from North in Derry in Northern Ireland, uh, uh, which toured we toured scotland with that play uh and uh that was very much about uh, there was a, a, a strong class element to that to that play i would say um but on the whole it's not something i've, I've explored uh dramatically but that yeah. that dramatic key of oh you again ben yeah here we are wait a second 
No, you're okay. frozen. Sorry, I called you Ben. It's Benjamin, isn't it? You don't like Ben. It's fine. We're 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 in our second interview. You can call me Ben. We, we've but you don't like her, do you? You, you know. It's like my familiar term. I, I feel familiar enough to you now to not be rankled by uh, being disrespected by you. Can I call you back real quick? Are you like um, the way Christopher Hitchens used to be if someone called him Chris? He used to freak out. He hated it. You know what? I should have. I should just get a chair in here so I can just like start. Maybe I should just rip down the green screen. Yeah. Um, whenever yeah. that happens. If someone calls you Ben, just a bit of drama is always good for a podcast i think see that's what i'm that's what i'm talking about how do you how do you create something interesting okay so like it seems like on one level of analysis the the woke scolds have are just hijacking drama for clicks right so it doesn't matter like identity politics just turns out to be the easiest thing to instantiate like a dramatic kind of narrative so how do you replace that 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 tension with something else how do you swap out that that amount of uh, activity and interactivity and reactivity that you get from from that kind of storytelling in me. Well, are you are you suggesting then that the sorry are you are you still talking about uh, the woke scolds? You're talking about the drama. Well, I'm, I'm talking about them just being bad bad writers. You know, so okay. so they're just uh, they're they're pouring a bunch of sex and drugs and violence into something just to get more attention on it, right? It's just lowest kind of common denominator stuff. Like, they're still yeah. using a basic dramatic tool of conflict to drive their, I guess, uh, you know, their narrative. So, right, okay. But you, as a refined author, you know, who have... It's <laughs> <laughs> very nice of you. You thrive on conflict, too, right? So when you go back into the media sphere, I guess one one way that you you dr- drive uh, interaction is through Titania um, because she's a conf- conflictus. Oh, okay. So this is different. So I don't thrive on conflict. I, I, if I'm writing a play or a musical conflict is at the heart of it and it's essential. Yeah. I don't, I don't, Titania uh, is, is I, I don't see her as, I know this sounds odd because people say that it's antagonistic and people, I don't see it that way. Yeah, but uh, if the audience sees it that way, then it doesn't matter if you don't see it. Yeah, that way. I, I get that. Yeah, I get that. And I, and I, because I had a conversation with someone recently about how when I was I was talking about how, I, I you know the need to the, the need for empathy, the need. I've written a few articles about this. I don't know if you've seen them where I'm talking about, um, just even in terms of pure self interest. If you're not empathetic, if you're not if you're not taking into account the other person's feelings, your argument is going to fail. So. Um, I was talking about this and how, you know, how throwing insults and all of that stuff, it, it mudslinging doesn't work. It doesn't work as an argumentative technique. Um, it's, it's, it's childish, etc. And then they came back to me with, well, what about Titania? As in Titania is you're making fun of your opponent. And I've never really seen it that way. Um, insofar as yes, yes, it is. Yes, it is. But it's not, I see it as a different part of my life. I mean, if I'm, if I'm involved in political writing or, or talking about politics I never insult people. I don't do that. I don't go into that. I, I don't. Uh, it would never occur to me to to do that. It would it would be so alien to my nature. And then with Titania, um, that's a, that's satire, and satire doesn't necessarily represent things exactly accurate. And 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 it exagger it uses exaggeration as part of its part of its point. Um, um, but I. But it's still that's what drives attention. That's what dro- drove a large yeah. part of people's attention to you i suppose the difference is is that i'm not 
I'm not writing her character in order to upset and annoy people. That's maybe the difference. I'm aware that it does mm-hmm. uh, because of how angry they get. Um, but that's not the pr- primary intention. The primary intention is to uh, to mock and and satirize bigotry and intolerance in the form that it takes within the social justice movement. Mm-hmm. That's the that's the the point, which I think is a very positive thing to do. Personally, um, but of course they don't. That way. To offend ever. It's hard to offend you ever. Me. Oh no, I mean I'm quite easily offended. When when's the last time you were offended? Today. About what? Was it something I did? Yeah, you, it's your it's your jumper. <laughs> what the hell is that? Like, I mean, it's, it doesn't suit it's from you. From Old Navy. <laughs> it doesn't <laughs> suit you. It, it, but it's like you haven't made an effort. No, I haven't. This is a Ben Sherman jumper, and I believe you. Believe you me. Before you came on, I was dressed in like my pajamas. I was, I, like I thought, no, I'm going to make an effort <sighs> because I know we're on lockdown, but we can't all just look like tramps. <laughs> I'm not like a tramp. Maybe I look like a freshman in in high school. Maybe I don't think I look like a total tramp. I knew I had a feeling I should have changed. One because I was talking to somebody else beforehand, so I'm going to have two yeah. videos of me saying uh, wearing the same thing. But well, that's well exactly. So now it's obvious that you just do it in one go. Well, I need a queer it's, eye kind of no. input thing. A queer eye. So now it's you're homophobic. Now is that what you're saying? No, no. I'm saying that uh, the the gay you gene are... leads to insights into human, uh, you know, uh, presentation that I I miss you're out. You're calling on. me a fag. You're calling me a faggot. Well, you are a little campy when you when you when you say things repeatedly. It kind of sing song. <laughs> no, it's very. It's actually lovely. It it actually does suit you. I was I was joking. I like it. Okay, it's not offensive. It's not offensive. It's like no. hypoallergenic for your offense. So when was the last time you got offended? Like really uh, offended? Like blood oh, boiling? Really I mean, look, look. So there's levels of offense, aren't there? Uh, Last time I got really offended was when a friend of mine uh, behaved like a complete dick to me. Uh, oh, do you? Because it, yeah, like it, it, it affects me less. I mean, on Twitter, when it's strangers on Twitter, it doesn't matter. But it's when someone who considers themselves to be a friend behaves uh, badly and and uh, and uh, insults you. That's that's not nice. That is offensive. Nothing wrong with being offended. Like this is the odd thing. Like I'm often mischaracterized as as believing that uh, if you're offended, you should just Oh, just grow up, you man up, you snowflake, you know, and which is just not something I've ever said or even come close to saying. That's the weird thing about that is I've never even remotely got close to that. Um, um, because actually, I think human sensitivity is something that we is a good thing. And I don't think there's anything wrong with being offended either, uh, particularly if it's warranted. Uh, and it's, you know, I don't have an issue with that. Um, but and I'm not, you know. I get offended. Yes, I think that's the that's the thing. I get offended if people who know me uh, start mischaracterizing me or, or 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 saying things to me that I, they know they must know are not true and are therefore only intended to cause hurt and upset. And that that is that's not good. Okay, so yeah. firsthand offense, but not secondhand offense. You don't go. You don't indulge in being offended on behalf of somebody else. No. Why would I? That doesn't make any sense to me. I, 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 I see a lot of that, uh, yeah. but I don't understand why anyone, because offense is such a personal thing. 
Mm. It's only about how you feel. Mm. You know, I can't be offended on behalf of of other people. I don't think that can even work. Well, I know people do it, but I, I don't. I just don't get it. I don't get why you would be like that. Yeah, I think there's a certain mindset that that manifests within the woke um, you know, armada of yeah. projecting personal emotions onto the political yeah. sphere. Like a lot of a lot of. And, and, and you get off on that because it looks like your emotions are so much bigger because you're talking about, you know, geopolitics or you're talking about historical racism. You're like, wow, yeah. my, my emotions really do matter because they expand according well, to the also, topic. Well, also, it's the idea that if you're uh, sufficiently emotional, you, you've won an argument. And, of course, that's not true. Hmm. So, so I, I, did, I had an interview recently with, um, I can't remember who it was, but some, someone, a, 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 a well-known activist or writer or something. She's got a blue check anyway on Twitter. Um, blue hair posted, too? Yeah, incredible. No, you know, in, in this, posted this incredible, all in capitals. You fucking sociopath, how dare you fucking... And I'd made quite a sensible point about hate speech. And someone who writes like that, you just think, wow, I mean, that that isn't going to win you the argument, love. Hmm. And also, you look like a fucking sociopath right there. Hmm. You know, so there's the hypocrisy element. Um, so that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, there's too much. Yes. I think it's always sensible. Like, I always, if I'm in an argument, a political argument or something, and I'm sensing that emotion is sort of taking over or ego is taking over either in myself or my uh, detractor, hmm. I'll move along because that's going to. We're not going to get anywhere with that, you know. Yeah, um, we can you hear me still. Yeah, no, there, here you are. You froze a bit there. Okay, are you so, going to go through come out all the frozen bits? I, I'm going to be spending a lot of time with your uh, digital ghost in the coming Is days. Is that going to be really boring? No, it's fine. You? I I play video it's games fun. and I I do this at the same time. Okay. But when you're on live TV and and the emotions start to take over or the ego starts to take over, how do you pivot the conversation? Or do you just let them do that? It genuinely doesn't happen very often, though. I mean, I I, I, I know. Have you ever seen me do a TV thing where someone's getting emotional with me? You know, I think it was uh, Douglas Murray. I saw Douglas Murray, like the women started to break down in front of him and he remained calm. There's one I did about a month ago, which is a TV show called The Big Questions. And someone did, uh, a number of people did start shouting at me. Um, But that was just, and again, I, you know, I I, I was making what I perceived to be sensible points. I certainly wasn't being antagonistic or rude. Um, And I just, I just let them shout. And then, and then just, um, I think, I think the failure would be is if you start shouting back. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, and um, I did. I do this show every now and then on, on the BBC called The Moral Maze, which is a radio show. And um, it's where there's a panel of us, and we interrogate um, people about different immoral ideas. And like one a of the other panel, problem or something like that. I don't know. I'm not familiar with that. But it's 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 okay. it's um it, it's a uh, it's it's a great it's a really great show. And I was on one of the other panelists um, said to me, she's on TV quite a lot, and she gets people shouting at her all the time and she she said to me um what you've got to remember is it's not about what's going on in the room it's what's being seen from home so just don't rise to it and it was a great piece of advice because that that coincidentally she told me that just like the week before i was on this tv show um and they really did snap at me and shout at me and i just thought you know what i i'm i'm just gonna even though your instinct is to to bite back uh 
I, I, you know, I just didn't, and it was, and it was better that way, I think, because I would have lost the argument that way. Hmm. Well, yeah, but, I mean, everybody you know, they, would see they, you as the oh, violent aggressor. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it, it never works. It literally never works. There is no example of where shouting at someone and insulting them has persuaded them to change their mind. It has literally never happened. No, no. Uh, I mean, if, if you have like an axe or some sort of weapon, you know, then you can you know, command the room after you. Oh yeah. Go sure. all the way through with that, but it sounds like you fantasized about that a little bit. Well, no, right now I'm just picturing Vikings yelling at each other, and you know, like I'm sure that that has won some arguments at some point. Yeah. <laughs> sexual fantasy? No, no. This is no? like just bloodbath. Like this is American, just like raw, <laughs> brutish when violence. Vikings. Vikings to me conjures kind of pornographic. Really? Scenario. Have you seen the way they? Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Am I revealing too much? Was this not what you? No, wanted no. To? I, I think we finally rounded. This is the corner. This is the inter, This is the part of the interview where everybody's like, oh, "We we got now somewhere." Shame me for my Viking fetish. Well, it's it's the is it the Nordic? Is it that Nordic beauty that? I mean, they do. They're beautiful people, aren't they? There's well, no yeah. Game. And they're yeah. socialists. Well, at least they would have us believe. You know. <laughs> Are they? Yeah, some of them are, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess, no. I guess your land was pillaged quite a bit by all sides. You guys had the Romans and the Vikings, and oh, oh yeah, a lot of pillaging, a lot of pillaging went on here. Yeah. Are uh, you working on a musical now? Are you working on a play now? Is there something yes, in the works? Working on a musical, uh, which should be, uh, well, it's an adaptation of an existing book, um, which, um, uh, well, it's going to be on in August. So I have to finish it pretty damn soon because I don't know at the moment um, whether <laughs> any of the theatres will be open. So I don't know. Yeah. But, you know, I've been commissioned to write it already. So I'm going to write it anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that will be on in uh, in August. Yeah. In Belfast. So I need to finish that. Yeah. I need to I need to start it, to be honest. Uh, how do musicals work? You just think uh, you're working with a musician, right? But like, do you yeah. do you come up with a, like a sing songy tune? How do you attenuate the drama to the music? And so the way I've done, I've done now six musicals and they've all been adaptations of existing uh, works, except for one. So I wrote a musical called The Guinea Pig Club, which is quite an interesting uh, conceit because it's about um it doesn't sound like your typical topic for musical theatre. It's about uh, uh, a plastic surgeon in World War Two, pioneering plastic surgeon, who would um, recreate the faces of RAF pilots who had been burned uh, in 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 war. Um, and that's based on a true story. But but the, but the, 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 it's not adapted from anything. I haven't adapted it from from anything in particular. Um, whereas the other things, the other ones I've adapted are things like. Uh, Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift, um, 101 Dalmatians. Um, there was a Terry Pratchett novel I d- adapted called Soul Music. Um, I did a Pinocchio by Carlo Collodi. Um, so I've always adapted stuff. Um, Huckleberry Finn. Um, but the one... Um, and and the, way, the way it works is I will read the book and then I will uh, read it again and I will sketch out the key points uh from 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 what i've read and the things that i think are likely to to feed into a musical adaptation but then i won't read it again when i'm writing the script so normally the script it so the dialogue doesn't overlap with what's in the book um and then i then uh you you treat the sort of songs as 
the songs are always in a musical it's not just they stop and sing a song uh the song is uh, like an extension of the dialogue so the, so the so the, the the emotion of a scene reaches a point where the only thing the characters can do is express it in music it it starts to become quite intuitive and 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 by the end of the song something has to have happened so in a sense the narrative is being uh is being pushed through through the medium of song so it so and that's something if anyone is trying to write musicals, that's something to remember all the time. That the, at the start of the song, at the end of the song, something should have happened. And also there should be a reason why people are singing then. Not just, we've got a catchy tune, let's shove it in here. Um, so you, 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 you identify in any given story the, the song points. When are the moments of heightened emotion? That's where the songs come. Um, and... Um, and there are very formulaic things about musicals that you can learn. Once you've watched a number of musicals, you know that there are certain formulas that work. Like the second or third song is almost always like a, what they call an I want song. So it's a song about someone as, aspiring to what they what they want, like um, like uh, Maria in West Side Story or like um, um, Somewhere That's Green in Little Shop of Horrors. It's, it's someone singing about what they what they want to get out of life or where they, where they want to go. And, uh, and that as a device uh, pretty much always works you know it's it's a it's a really a solid a strong thing to do because so much of musical theater is about the story and about the character and about the journey and sometimes when you're adapting so, so with gulliver's travels it was difficult because gulliver's travels is such an episodic novel i don't know if you've read it at all it's very episodic people know the the, the two main islands you know lilliput and uh, brobdingnag and um, and you have the so the so gulliver is uh, he's always the same size, but he's with very, very big people or very, very small people, right? Um, and those are the two, big, those are the islands everyone knows. But there's other islands. There's there's Laputa, which is the flying island, which is populated by um, these uh, people who endlessly think and cogitate over scientific, futile scientific experiments. Um, and they, they're, they're always in a virtual kind of coma because they're always thinking. The only way to talk to them and wake them up is to hit them with a bladder on a stick. Um, and then there's there's other there's an island of the dead. I can't remember what that one's called. Um, there's the Huinims land, the, the island of the Huinims, which are these horses where horses have enslaved human beings, which is probably a precursor to Planet of the Apes. Um, so there's all of these different things that don't generally get used in in adaptations, but it does mean it's very very episodic because it's one island to the next. And and in a music, the difference with a musical that works for a novel, but with musical theatre, you have to have a, like an arc, a character arc that goes all the way through. So I had to be quite creative in terms of um uh what you know what happens to gulliver through the course of the musical and the story of gulliver uh so i ended up adding things that aren't in the in the uh, in the in the novel um hmm. so it's a it's a really fascinating and the other great thing about writing musical theater is it is so essentially collaborative it, you you can't do it yourself, you know. I know there are some utter geniuses who do everything themselves, right? But most of us can't do that. And what we do, so I can't write music, for instance. And so I, I, write, I write lyrics, but I'm stuck after that. Um, and then you're working with a director who often doubles as a dramaturg, who, who's going to talk to you, talk talk to you about what's working, what's not. And I really enjoy it. I really love doing that. <laughs> I've talked a lot about this. We need a signal when I'm getting boring. You need you need, no. you need there needs to be like a term, a phrase. Uh, like a safe word can um i i need safe, to check yeah. the, so the, the college that i built my career on is having an emergency meeting either to shutter its doors or to deal with the crisis and i just need to make sure that they can't hear me um oh. so, 
so I need, I need to, I'll be right back. I, I just, yeah, I've been... no worries. Where are you now? That So why can they hear you? Okay. So they're having a emergency meeting. Um, yeah. But it, but because they can't meet in person, they're doing it on the internet. So I'm recording it with my other computer just in case they say something awesome that I can use. And okay. Continue coverage. <laughs> are you still, you're okay. I'm I'm fine, but I do want to turn it into a musical. Evergreen, the musical. It's just. Uh-huh. Have you seen any of the footage of it? I should I should send you a couple of distilled blanks because. I've, I've seen um what well, when uh, the Weinstein thing. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen the footage. It's pretty scary. Oh yeah, they they go it's, to another level. It's it's transcendent. I think it's perfect for a musical. Yeah, and it's just incredible bullying. It's just incredible vicious bullying, and you know. Yeah, so yeah, a music that would be perfect. I mean, there, there needs to be like a, an anti woke musical. I'm not the one to write that. Really? But yeah. No? I don't think. No, no. Because, I've, because I've done so much of this stuff now. Oh, okay. <laughs> like, I think, I think um, I've written two books as Titania. I've, I've written endless articles about the topic. I, I, mm. I know. So I did, I did an interview recently, a live interview, and, and I, I said to them before, and, you know, can we not talk about woke stuff? And can we not talk? And of course, they made the very good point that the people have bought tickets to hear us talk about it. Yeah, you know. Yeah. And of course, and they made the other very good point, which is that it's all right for me because I, I I talk about this stuff all the time. These people, a lot of these people, don't get to talk about this stuff, but they really want to. Yeah. And they they, they feel afraid to do so, and this is an opportunity. And of course, you know, and that you know, and that's the other reason I wanted to do the tour with Douglas because I'm aware that. Well, two reasons. I mean, one of the reasons is that that it does give brings people into the conversation in conversations they they won't normally have. Um, but also it, it's a way for us to talk through the ideas to reach a better understanding for ourselves, you know? Um, but I, but I do, I do kind of feel like if I wrote a musical, I mean, that would be overkill. That's, it's a lot of work as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's true. Huh? How long do these musicals take for you to write well, six months? Yeah. For a draft. Right. But the problem is then it's never fully done. So like this musical that's on in August, it, you know, that won't be, I could I could have another few years on it and and so the musical that was on last year the one I wrote called Paperboy had been on the year before that and in between those two productions of the same show I rewrote all sorts of things there was an extra song in there you know you're constantly developing it musicals take years and years to get right they they really do okay it's just not a one-off you just walk in there and it just happens no no it never that never happens I mean even things like massive successes like Matilda that took eight years of development. You know, it takes a long time uh, to get to get to get it right. And you're always even in the even even when it's in front of an audience. That that's the point. You often spot things and think, oh, that's not working. Or you know, okay, okay. Uh, it's 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 fun. It's really fun. Do you think you'll ever go down the Disney route? Do a Frozen? Or? I don't think it could work because I think I'm I'm, I'm my instinct is to resist the sentimental always, oh. and that's that's a problem, and it's a, particularly a problem for for musical theatre, which is a tradition of sentimentality. But if you think about like my favourite musicals, like Little Shop of Horrors, which I think is an absolute masterpiece, is so un, un, not only un- unsentimental, but anti-sentimental. If you think about it, they, you know, it's got the love story. It's got the things you have to have. Um, but even like the, love, the big love song, Suddenly Seymour, is kind of funny. And, and it feels melodramatic um, in a way that's needless. The fact that one of the main protagonists is eaten by a plant. You know, they, they, they pull away, they pull back from the sentimental all the time, and it's very okay. funny. Um, um, 
I don't like things that are cloying, mawkish. You know, I, I get, I, I, I feel, I cringe when that sort of thing happens. You know, so, um, so I tend to write musicals that that resist sentimental. And by sentimental, I mean I would go with James Joyce's definition of sentimentality, which is unearned emotion. Okay, I, that's that's the way I, I describe it. There's nothing wrong with emotion, high emotional stakes, and and being moved. I think being moved by a piece is very important. But if it's uh, if it's unearned in the way like, you know, if you watch like Pearl Harbor by Michael Bay and it's constantly playing sad music at the point at which you're meant to feel sad, you haven't earned that. Okay. You're just you're okay. just telling us what we're meant to feel. Uh, and, it, and that kind of trickery can work, of course, because music has that effect on you. But it's unearned. So, uh, yeah, I'm always I always balk at the sentimental just artistically, even though I'm quite a naturally sentimental person. I'm very susceptible to it, and maybe that's why I mistrust it. What about you? Are you quite a sentimental person? I, I, I resonate with what you're saying. Like, I always resist when it's obvious. Like, yeah. the moment it becomes... And I'm probably uh, sensitive enough to know right before it becomes obvious, so I'm always kind of resisting that. Exactly. It's, 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 it's a really good... Because uh, it's a real flaw in art and literature, the sentimental. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, it, it does, it's not good. Um, hmm. What about you, the human being? Are you easily upset by things? As say? a human being, you're asking yeah. me about my human status being upset. Is that okay? No, that's yeah. fine. I, I, I get. Uh, I haven't been upset recently, but I, when I do get upset, I always uh, am amazed at how my emotions are telling me something that doesn't necessarily match up to reality, and so I just kind of sit with ah, my emotion and kind of watch it. Kind of really strong. So, so you mean that you are easily upset by things that perhaps if you were just being completely rational and, and logical, you wouldn't concern you or shouldn't. Has anybody ever, I, okay. Well, I, I don't know if anybody's ever entirely rational or logical or even the people who are, are always motivated or fueled by emotion. But um, yeah. I, I don't, I'm not necessarily tied to the logical and the rational, but I am tied to a certain kind of baseline state of being uh, chill, at least in my behavior, even if yeah. the inside, like, cause I guess because of my memory, if I do something stupid, I live with that for years. It, it takes a while. So uh, over time, I've learned to just not overact, right? So right. I hold okay. a lot in and and just watch the things. Interesting. I don't want to psychoanalyze you, by the way. That's not no, what that's I was fine. trying to Well, it was, it was interesting. What? Your father. Do I have a relationship with my father? Yeah, do you have issues there? Anything? I, I did, but just back in my 20s, you know. I'm, no, I'm, I thought I'm, so. I'm, I'm across do you need another gin and tonic? It's <laughs> sad. <laughs> I'm only teasing you. Are you guys uh, fine for the weekend? Are you guys set up? Do you guys have plenty of beans? Is this... Uh... Well, we've got... Um, I mean, we didn't do that stupid stockpiling thing. So we've mm. got what we've got in the house, you know, and it's fine. And it's it'll be fine. fine. It's totally fine. Like you can, wow. the shops are. There's food in the shops. We, okay. You know, we're not, you know, it's not going to be an issue. Hmm. I mean, you can still get a bloody Domino's pizza. Oh, they're delivering. Know? Yeah, it's not the war. <laughs> it's not, <you> know, <laughs> it's, it's, it really need to put things into perspective a little bit. Hmm. You know? I, th this interview and my last interview are totally two. You two have totally different positions. I should have had you guys both on at the same time. Ooh, ooh, sorry, Katie Herzog. She's a, a writer on Twitter. You should you should definitely if you don't know her, you should get aware of her. She's pretty awesome. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But she has a completely different perspective on it. But she's you know she's she's American, so we don't have. Well, you people tend to catastrophize. 
there. You're not what are you thing. talking about? We're, we're on the verge of revolution at any given moment. Like, they might come for our guns, or they might come, uh, you know, the bad guys or the, the bosses might come for us. They might. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I spoke to a friend in America who said that the, the gun stores had all sold out of guns. Yeah, That's not- the, the very liberal areas, too. Totally anti-Second Amendment areas, voting-wise, all liquidated their gun stores when this happened. Yeah, wow. Okay. So yeah, something I, I wouldn't want. I I have held a gun once mm-hmm. and I didn't enjoy it. Yeah, mm-hmm. I didn't like it. I I felt I felt weird about it. You know, no, like is this like a, a kind of like a cultural problem or like a personal problem? We're just not that? used to them. We don't even see them here. I've seen them a lot in Northern Ireland, um, <laughs> but but I've got so used to people. Yeah, I mean no, as in the police in Northern Ireland. Oh, right. Yeah, but but in England, I just got so used to so you know. Over here, I've got so used to not seeing it. And when in America, and my friend had a gun in his hat, he owned a gun. So I held this gun, and, and this is in this is in Ohio, so that's allowed, right? Yeah, it's allowed everywhere. And uh, I just felt weird about it. I thought this is a this is a lethal, it's a lethal implement. Uh, don't I don't much like that. Yeah, well, you know, your machine kills fascists too. I mean, you have a lethal implement. What machine? Like your little Twitter machine, your mag- massive following of 400,000 people or whatever an obscene number of people not waiting on your every word. Uh, I hope not. You could, you could start <laughs> a, a panic of some sort. Titania's panic, moral panic of Titania. I could, can I? I could. You could? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I will. <laughs> <laughs> it's difficult with her at the moment because, of course, I can only talk about She's only going to talk about the coronavirus at the moment. Is it? Yeah. yeah. Well, what else? What else? Anything else I, I make a joke about or make an observation on is is like no one cares. It's like the news. I mean, you re, you watch the news. There is no other story. You know. I mean, there was a big. There was a. There was a story the other day about a, a peace talks with the Taliban and the possibility that they might get uh, Al Zawakari, um, <laughs> and, and that's quite a big deal. But no yeah, one read. It was about. It was last week. There was some talk about the potential of a of a, of a because there's talks going on with the Taliban at the moment. There's a potential of getting out the Al Qaeda number one, who's hiding out in between the Pakistan Afghanistan border. And okay. this is quite a big story under normal conditions. No one knew about it. I had to go to page thirty five of the, the newspaper to to find it. You know, normally that would be a big story. So no one no one's really talking about anything but the virus now. Do you, do you feel resentful that you have to follow the public's attention? That I have to follow? Yeah. That oh, you have you mean, to remain topical? Oh, well, I mean, uh, it makes sense because the person I'm satirizing would be commenting on what's happening. Okay. Yeah. You know, it's the same reason that I don't really like Twitter, right? But it makes no sense to satirize the kind of person who would be obsessed with Twitter and not do it through Twitter. Yeah. You know, so that, you know, that's the forum that you should use. You can't do it through Instagram. Instagram's too nice. You know, you don't, people on Instagram are not. Why is that, by the way? I don't really know why that. I mean, I, I don't even know how to use Instagram, really. But what, people, they don't get on these big arguments. It's because it's all visual, isn't it? So yeah, people it's don't all get picture. Yeah, yeah. Locking horns and all that nonsense. Yeah, yeah. yeah they're, Twitter they're, is designed for, you know, aggression. <laughs> I just don't know if we'll ever get around the aggression. I think if we can constellate the aggression with other modes of communication, but I think that the drama always drives debate. And and so yeah. 
I think that that liberal society. You make a very good point. Yes, and you said this earlier, and I, yeah, I think you're you're right. The, the, in a sense, people are rewarded by the drama psychologically. Yeah, not you see. I I I back away uh-huh. from from that sort of thing. I don't want I don't want the big drama. I want sensible adult discussions in calm uh, tones. <laughs> That's what I want. I really do. I can't be dealing with it. I switch off as soon as someone starts shouting. I just switch off. I'm not interested. Hmm. You know, that's what a grumpy teenager behaves like. And you're beyond that. Yes, frankly. <laughs> I, I think that's a sensible elitism. Adulthood is the is the elitism that that we yeah. can. Yeah, don't talk to cantankerous kids masquerading as adults. Sure. Yeah. I think that's a fair. I think that's a fair point. To, what's the point though? I mean, you can't get anywhere. <laughs> You know, that's why I, that's why I will always talk to someone who sensibly and politely disagrees. Always. Someone calls me a fascist or whatever. I won't I'll start screaming or the Twitter equivalent of screaming. You all know, caps. I, yeah. All caps, emojis, GIFs, whatever. I'm, I'm just I, I can't I can't be bothered anymore. Sometimes I will just because if it, if it makes me laugh. If someone is so irrational, <laughs> then I'll then I'll go along with it because that's quite funny. Um, but that's just if I'm bored. But I'm not going to. It's not going to be a serious discussion, is it? You're not going to. It's not. There's no product. There's no level of productivity there. You know. I I'm really really glad that we had this conversation because now I know how you pronounce GIF and it it aligns with my preferred pronunciation. I had another guest on. She pronounced it as GIF, and it was really difficult. After that, I I didn't know how to continue with that conversation, but we made it through. That almost threw me I would, off. I, I mean, I think that's wrong. I think. Don't you think? I, I think it's totally wrong, but I, I'm, I'm wrong about Titania. 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 So. Well, it's like um, hege- hegemony. How would you pronounce hegemony? <laughs> hegemony or hegemony? Or, in a lot of it, British people pronounce it hegemony. Or hegemony. Heg- oh, God. See, that goes too so, far. He- hegemony? God. Yeah. No, uh, honestly, that's, that's quite a standard British thing, and yet... I, and yet some of the most uh, the people I respect the most in Britain would say, no, it's definitely hegemony. Okay, good. So what the Hege- ah. Hegemony? That sounds like some really, really bad sort of marriage. Like, that's even worse it, than polyamory. Hegemony? I think it's wrong. I, I remember I had this debate with someone. We checked the Oxford English Dictionary's phonetic spelling, and they claimed it was hegemony. Okay. So I'm going to go with that. You know, I'm going to go with that. Hegemony. Andrew, we're frozen again. Again. I think, look, I think we probably should call it a day, shouldn't we? Because we yeah. keep freezing. We're, we're this futzing. is going to be a nightmare for you to edit. That's fine. People are going to love it. Thanks for coming on again. Can I call you back one more time to say goodbye yeah. with an animated face? It's really difficult to talk to you when you're frozen. Yeah, sorry. How many times is it frozen during the course of the conversation? I, I'll, I'll give you the tally later. But it's not good. <laughs> it's going to be fine. Okay, I do, I'm gonna have to get. I'm getting one of those dongles, and I'll sort out. So if we do it again, I'll I'll um I'll make sure we we're, we're connected. Probably. Yeah, there's different kinds of dongles. I have this really nice dongle, but it's like a serious thing. It's got like, oh, it's like that's, a, that's an industrial. Like you could connect everything. Yeah, everything. Yes, Skynet. <laughs> that's something we didn't talk about. We didn't talk about religion. We should do that. Okay, yeah, that'd be great. So, let's do it next time. Okay. Because it's a long story. Look, I went to convent school. My mother was a nun. It's a long story. So we'll do that next time. Wait, your mother's a nun? 
Congratulations for reaching the end of the podcast. If you enjoyed this product, consider donating to this channel via paypal.me slash Benjamin Boyce or joining me on Patreon. Also follow me on Twitter at Benjamin A. Boyce. Have a good night.